We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I did it again. It's, it's rare I do it, but I mute it again. But hey, this is uh, Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel. Uh, all the major auto catchers, Odyssey, and Rumble as well. Really trying to push that Rumble. Uh, these these episodes right here I'm doing will get uploaded to YouTube later when that strike expires completely. Technically, I can upload, but uh, you know I'm, I'm I don't want a chance getting another strike, so I'm just going to wait till it completely expires. But these will be going up later. But you know, if you want to get them earlier, you know, Rumble, Rumble, Rumble. Uh, or you can do it in the audio podcatchers. Uh, if you want to support me, patreon.com is no way Jose 2020. Today we're continuing our RFK series with Lisa Pease. Probably going to be going a little bit into the ballistics. Uh, that might actually probably be the whole episode. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we're doing a deep dive here. As we'll do as many parts as we need to. But with that, let's go ahead and get Lisa in here and get into it. Hey, Lisa, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm it. willing to go as many. Like I told you before, I think I did somewhere in the ballpark around 15 hours for OKC. So yeah. if, the, if the content is there and I have a guest willing to do it, I will go deep as can be. Especially something that Love particularly it. interests me, which this one does interest me a lot. Uh, it's a little bit more niche, and I, and I guess I kind of like that. And it is like a lot of these conspiracies, you got to like really dig deep to get to the crazy stuff. This one's like right on the surface. And I don't right. mean that like uh, unbelievable. It's like, whoa. Like right off the bat. So uh, I'm ready to get, <laughs> if you want to remind my audience who you are real quick and kind of your, your work before we get into it. Uh, I know it's redundant, okay. it's multiple of these, but just to remind people, you know, kind of, you know, who, yeah. like what your credentials, I guess, are, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start to get into it. Okay. Yes. My name is Lisa Pease, obviously. I'm the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, this is the product of 30 years, or at this point, you know, what you're hearing tonight is the product of 30 years of research. I wrote the book at year 25. 
Uh, and I found some more stuff since then, a little bit of which I might mention tonight. We'll see. Uh, it's a fascinating case. I had no intention of writing a book when I started. I just wanted to know what happened. You know, if, if, if JFK was a conspiracy, and clearly to me that one was, what happened to his brother? Because it seemed like the same people would want to kill them both. And in fact, I do think that's what happened. And yes, so we can... <laughs> And you've done a lot of great other work on uh, on JFK and also MLK and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but did you did you have you done some work on X as well, or maybe I'm wrong? I I, I think I may have talked about X once. Okay. I've not written about X. I've read about X, mm -hmm. um, but I did write about Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the UN secretary, who was very Kennedy-esque. Uh, both of them shared the passion for these smaller third world countries that they'd be allowed to develop without the restraint of American imperialism, so to speak. And they were trying to work together to make a better world and they were both killed. So, and like I said, I think RFK was killed in part to prevent him from continuing that legacy. So. Well, all right, let's go ahead and get into it. I, let's, we're getting into the ballistics. And so I've, I've been kind of trying to conceptualize this since the last time I came, we came on and the different ways of kind of almost like breaking up into different groups of theories uh, when it comes to the ballistics. I think the first would obviously be, uh, you know, the, the official that, you know, Sirhan did it. And then after that, then it would be Sirhan didn't do it, but it was, he did shoot some people that, that were bullets in the gun. And, you know, obviously someone else killed them, likely, probably, maybe the, the security guard behind the guard. Yeah. Or, or, or somebody else. Yeah. Or somebody else, <laughs> or some combo of others. Yeah. Or the third being that he had no, uh, that he was, he was firing blanks, which is your theory. Which the more I think about it, the more that does kind of make sense to me. Because it is, it is kind of like if you did have some grand conspiracy and you had someone... Uh, you know, you had uh, a hypnotized guy there. Yeah. What if somebody like magically said the code word and ruined your whole plot? You yeah. wouldn't hang a plot on that. And with Sirhan being in front of Kennedy mm -hmm. while the assassins were clearly behind him because all the shots that hit Kennedy came from behind um, at steep upward angles. You know, you wouldn't want Sirhan accidentally killing your actual assassin with a real bullet before that guy who's hired to kill Robert Kennedy can get the job done. So it does actually make sense from a conspirator's point of view to have the guy firing blanks. And I may have mentioned on one of your earlier shows, there was a plot to kill Jimmy Carter that involved people firing blanks. And, you know, the guy, unfortunately, well, fortunately for the rest of us, but he fired his blanks too soon because he wanted to know if they were going to work. And of course he pulled focus and attention, the police rushed in and he tried to explain, oh, I'm part of this whole group. You know, obviously I think that plot was designed to fail. I don't think that one was, I think that was designed to scare Jimmy Carter, possibly into allowing the Shah of Iran into our country because it happened at a point when he was trying to keep him out for fear of exactly what happened when he did let him in. The Iranians were so upset, you know, that we were letting this brutal dictator and giving him medical treatment in our country. That's when they seized the the hostages, and that's how we had the Iran hostage crisis. So anyway, all this history is connected. Yeah. But let's go back to so what happened in the pantry. Five other people besides RFK Jr. were shot, and bullets were removed from each of those five. Um, 
one of them, and it, actually I think it was two of them, had another shot pass through their clothing and supposedly on into another person. Um, Robert Kennedy was shot four times, but one bullet passed just through his coat without hitting any skin. And the other went through like the upper part of his shoulder and out the front of his chest, but didn't stay in the body. The two bullets we know for a fact were in the body, one lodged at the back of his neck. If he was shot, um, <laughs> sorry, but <laughs> I'll show you my underarm. <laughs> he was shot <laughs> under the underarm and the shot continued across his back to lodge right at the base of his neck. And, uh, and then one shot lodged in his head. Well, it didn't lodge his head. At least one bullet exploded in his head. There's a question of whether it was one bullet or two bullets in the head. Uh, the autopsy report lists one, but uh, the autopsy report does list two diverging tracks. So that could just be two fragments. But a 22 is really small, and mm -hmm. to have two distinct tracks, there is a possibility. There's actually a lot of evidence in the record. My hair is going to come down, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of evidence in the record that, uh, that there were two bullets in the head and Wolfer, Dwayne Wolfer was the LAPD criminalist and he pulled in his log, he talks about receiving two bullets from the head, you know, or bullets, plural from the head. They were stored as evidence items 24 and 25. And yet they're supposed to all be fragments of one bullet. I mean, again, a 22 is pretty darn small. It's like the base of it's like the mm -hmm. size of a, you know, a pencil or a pen. I mean, it's really small. So why do you need two glass vials for mm -hmm. one small set of fragments? But if it were two bullets originally, that would make so much more sense. And uh, anyway, the size of one of the fragments reported was so big it was like 12 millimeters and that caught the attention of a different criminalist who worked in Pasadena, William Harper. And so he asked to see the evidence. This was two years later. He, it's funny because he read about this in a book written by an LAPD higher up who had been in charge of the investigation. And the, the whole purpose of that book was to show there was no conspiracy. But some of the evidence in that led Bill Harper to be curious, wow, maybe there was a conspiracy and I want to see these fragments. And so Bill Harper went down to the county. There's like an evidence room and he requested the bullets. And because he had great stature and a lot of friends in the LAPD as a criminalist, he was allowed to see them. And he looked at them 14 times in person and took uh, black and white photos. And it became very clear to him that two different guns had been firing just by the nature of the bullets. One bullet had what they call one cantalure at the top of it, and another bullet had two cantalures. And it's very unlikely when you're firing, you usually load your bullets from the same box. You don't pick randomly from different boxes. So usually the bullets should match, unless you suddenly ran out of one and had to start a new box. Um, but beyond that, they had different what they call rifling characteristics. When you fire a bullet, you know, it twists through the barrel and there are there are striation marks on it. There are lands and grooves formed. The grooves are like the rivers and the lands are like the canyon walls, if you will, <laughs> in a bullet. And the police can then take those and try and match them under a microscope to see 
you know, if they're right, and one bullet had like more grooves than the other bullet, which is not possible if they're fired from the same gun. So Bill Harper wrote an affidavit to the county saying, look, it's clear there was a conspiracy and that there were these, you know, two bullets. Well, of course, this caused a firestorm in the county because they're like, no, no, it can't be a conspiracy. That, you know, that that's just dangerous. If Wolfer was wrong in that case, imagine all the cases he had ruled on being reopened and how much that would cost the county. I honestly believe the reason the county never wanted to admit conspiracy here, despite all the evidence is it would have forced them to reopen dozens, maybe hundreds of previous cases where Wolfer had made these uh, suggestions. Wolfer got such a bad rap that I think it was a 1990 LA Times article, and they mentioned casually that people uh, would use the term Wolferism as a derogatory term in the LAPD <laughs> because he was known for falsifying the evidence, you know, and claiming, you know, he actually admitted to falsifying evidence in one case, and the California Supreme Court stopped just short of accusing him of perjury in another one. So this is the guy who's telling us these bullets are legit and they're all from Saran's gun. So you can see why there's a problem. Well, the fur grew over time, and there was a film that came out called The Second Gun that started to go into all the evidence of conspiracy. And really, there were calls to reopen the case, maybe to take it to Congress. And so uh, when Paul Schrade sued the LAPD over the evidence and you know wanted their records, CBS joined his lawsuit. And so between the two of them, they forced a reexamining of the case. Now they Real appoint quick, Paul. I don't mean yeah. to cut you off or throw. Oh, sure. Thought. Paul Schrade. Paul, Paul Schrade was one of the last victims, or one of the one not last victims, but one of yeah. one of the victims. One of the vi other people shot yeah. in the pants. And I believe he's right. the last, unless he's died recently that I'm aware of. I believe he he's the last. Died. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, he was very he's old. Now passed away. He was 97 before yeah. he died, and to the last day of his life, he was pursuing this case and trying to free the records and trying to get the county to reinvestigate. I mean, because he, he was just certain that. There's no way one bullet did all this damage. And it's funny because Paul never liked the label conspiracy theorist, but it's like, there's obviously a problem here. I don't care what you call me. You can't reconcile the evidence as it exists. So because of Paul and CBS, and by the way, CBS, I don't believe for a second they had any honorable intentions. I should note right here <laughs> that CBS was considered the CIA's most valuable asset in the media at the time. The CIA worked with the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, pretty much, you know, the AP, the UPI, all the major media sources. The CIA had gone either to their owners or to lower level people inside and recruited a lot of them. And on TV, pretty much anyone you see who has any fame at all, you can pretty much believe the CIA is talking to them as often as they can and trying to get their point of view across. They basically said that in their own 1992 report. I think it was a 1991 report initially reissued in 92, redacted in 92, but not redacted in 1991 where they bragged and said, we now have relationships with every major media in this country, and we've been able to change some intelligence failure stories into intelligence success stories, etc." So anyway, CBS gets to pick some experts, Paul Schrade gets to pick one expert, and I think the county got to pick some experts. 
and there was this panel and i honestly i don't remember if it was seven or nine but it's in my book and i went into the backgrounds of these different investigators and almost all of them had some tie to the world of intelligence or police work i mean again these aren't just like individual scientists with no bias at all these were people obviously with a bias and you know to find in favor of the government so the panel was carefully constructed it was appointed by judge wenke w-e-n-k-e so i call it the wenke panel um they looked at the evidence for about a month i mean they spent a lot of time with it they refired sirhan's gun but they said they couldn't match any of the bullets that from the refiring to any of the victim bullets they were looking at but they claimed it was because sirhan's gun had been fouled in the sense that when you fire like an unjacketed bullet through, it leaves like a lead buildup. And the more you fire, the more the lead builds up and it changes the shape of the barrel. So of course that would make sense. Now here's my question, because if Wolfer, if anybody from the LAPD could have gotten a hold of that gun after it went to the grand jury, Wolfer would have gotten it, refired new bullets, dummied them up and said they all match and therefore Sirhan killed everybody or shot everybody. And the fact that that didn't happen suggests to me the barrel might have been fouled before it ever went to evidence. The, ex the explanation is that, oh, the LAPD used to pull out the gun and fire it for souvenirs. They don't have access. It's with the county. It's not with the LAPD. They can't get in there. The county guards its evidence very well. In fact, one of the DAs for the county, Joe Bush, at that, that time, uh, he tried to suggest that maybe some conspiracy theorists got in and switched some bullets around and, you know, <laughs> ruined the gun. And that was all disproven at that time. They actually had a whole investigation and realized truly no one could get to that evidence. So I think the reason the bullets never matched the gun is because Sirhan wasn't firing, you know, bullets that night. He was firing blanks. It, it fits the rest of the story. But it gets worse, all right? So the night, or I should say the day, I guess. Well, so June 5th, Kennedy is shot, but he's still alive. He doesn't die until June 6th. Because the bullet in the back of his neck was non-fatal, they didn't retrieve it until June 6th during the autopsy. And it was large enough that they could use it for bullet comparison. You know, the fragments were not able to use for bullet comparison. So that became the Kennedy bullet was the neck bullet. And uh, the same with William Wiesel and uh, James, or Ira Goldstein. Those three bullets were roughly intact enough to be comparable to each other. All right, but there's a serious problem. And Wolfer must have seen it with his own eyes because in his own log, he never records actually comparing a Sirhan test bullet to the Kennedy bullet. You would think that'd be the first thing he would do in log and there'd be a match and there'd be records. There's none of that. He must have known as Harper knew when he looked at them, these didn't come from the same gun. So there's a four hour gap in his record that day but a five hour gap from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. He like signs off at 4 p.m., signs back on at 9 p.m. and does a photo comparison of the Ira Goldstein bullet and the Kennedy neck bullet, takes a picture of it and doesn't tell anybody until years later that there's this photo micrograph comparison of these two bullets and they line up and they match. And so therefore, whoever shot one shot the other, right? 
Okay, but what happens is when the panel gets that photo micrograph, they don't know, by the way, that in the LAPD files, there's a memo saying there's a deception in this photo <laughs> and don't ever show it to the public. We're saving it for kind of a special occasion. Like if there's a reinvestigation, then we'll surface it. And so they surface it in this and they tell the panel it's a photo of a, a test bullet from Sirhan's gun and the Kennedy neck bullet. The panel looks at the bullets they have and they decide it's really the Goldstein bullet and the Kennedy bullet. So they can't prove it came from Sirhan's gun, but this helps them say only one gun was used because at least those two match and that disproves Harper. But what the panel never did, and all panels should do this, they never actually followed the train of evidence to see if those were in fact the Kennedy bullet and the Goldstein bullet. They just believed that they were. But in fact, the bullet that was supposed to be the Kennedy bullet, when Thomas Taguchi took it out and he confirmed this to the grand jury, he signed the base of it TN31. And he always used his initials and the last two digits of the autopsy case number. All right, but when the panel looks at that same bullet, supposed to be Kennedy deck bullet, on the base, instead it says DWTN. It's not the same bullet. And the same with the Goldstein bullet. When the doctor retrieved it at the hospital, he marked it with an X and handed it to a cop. And when the panel gets it, it has no markings at all. You know, it's like X's don't just disappear. I mean, that's the whole reason you mark a bullet so you can identify it later. So again, not the same bullet. And so it's clear that you know, from day one, literally June 6th, the day Kennedy died, Wolfer realized we have a problem. The bullets don't match. Wolfer went and he said at the trial, he's like, I found a gun with a very close serial number to run some tests with. Well, I think the first test he did is, hmm, let me make some new fresh bullets. And I think those became the Wiesel bullet, the Goldstein bullet, and the Kennedy bullet, because the panel claimed that those three at least matched. And there were no other bullets that they could match. But all three of those bullets were fake. We know the Wiesel bullet was fake because it was retrieved like 48 hours before it was turned into evidence. So I think Wolfer found out that guy had the bullet and he's like, don't turn it in yet. I think we're gonna have to do something with that bullet. And sadly, these guys, the cops involved, this was from the Rampart Station. And in LA, uh, the Rampart Station is notorious for corruption. It is like the, the, the picture, you know, what do they call that? The, you know, the epitome basically of corruption. It's the one that a lot of TV series criticizing the LAPD are based on. And in the 1990s, they did a very serious investigation and actually put the entire LAPD under federal receivership because it was so bad and so corrupt and they wanted time to clean it out and get rid of all the bad apples. And they noted in the report, the corruption dated back to the 1940s. And we're talking the 1960s. So like 20 years of corruption by that point, you know, by the time uh, this happened. So everything about the bullets stinks to high heaven. And again, if Sirhan fired all the bullets, there would be no reason to substitute any bullets because they would just match his gun. There'd be no reason to foul the barrel. In the pantry, whoever fired, fired copper jacketed bullets, which should have cleaned any buildup of lead out of the barrel. But 
you know, if Sirhan had been firing a gun at the range that day and fired a lot of bullets, if he was firing cheap lead bullets without copper jacketing, that would explain the lead buildup. And, and if he didn't fire copper jacketed bullets later, that would explain why the lead buildup was still there. So everything fits. Everything fits to explain that Sirhan didn't do this. So how do I want to say? There are so many pieces of this. There was Al Lowenstein was a hero in this case. He was, uh, he had been elected to Congress in 1968 to represent Long Island. He was a friend of the Kennedys. He was actually a friend of Jerry Brown's and came out here and, and stayed with him in California when he lost his re-election in 1970 because they had redistricting. He was number seven on Nixon's enemies list. So they basically redistricted him out of his seat and set it up so he couldn't be reelected. And uh, so there he is with time on his hands and nothing to do. And he read the autopsy report and he, he has a quote and it's online somewhere, but he's like, my God, the heavens shook. He's like, I realize there's no way that Sirhan, who everybody knew had been facing Kennedy, could have shot him from behind at close range. There's just no way. And so that caused his own personal kind of journey into this case. And he was pressuring Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Another reason maybe Jimmy Carter was almost killed. He was trying to get Jimmy Carter to reopen the case because in the 70s, there was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and he did lobby in 1977 to get the RFK case included. Now, Lynn Mangan told me something that may or may not be true. I pass it along with that caveat. Lynn, how do I want to say it? I have never known Lynn to lie, just outright lie, but I've definitely known her to be mistaken. So, but she told me that it was Mary Sirhan, Sirhan's mother, who had contacted Al Lowenstein and said, please don't have my son's case included because she was very worried and had been threatened. I mean, it's a fact that she and her family, they got, you know what a hijack letter looks like with like little magazine letters cut out. People were sending that to her home and the letters were clearly cut from a police magazine because they, they like put that in there so that she would know it's like, this is the police coming after you and insinuating they would find a way to loop the younger brother Munir into the conspiracy. They would dumb, dummy up some more evidence, like if there's going to be two shooters, we're still going to keep it in your family. And so for that reason, she was like all panicked and didn't want anything to happen to another son. You know, she'd already lost one to jail. So Lowenstein didn't pursue that. And I just, like I said, I don't know if Lynn's telling the truth or pulling that out of somewhere. Lynn is now gone, so we can't confirm that either way. Um, but anyway, there there were other experts besides Bill Harper who had looked at the evidence and said it's a problem. And one of the things the panel did that I thought was really weird is instead of they didn't look at Harper's evidence or notes, but they noticed that his photographs were black and white. So they, and so they said, oh, that's why Harper got it wrong. All his photos were in black and white. We took color photographs, which show greater depth and more shadows. And that's how we could tell the bullets really did match. Well, again, he looked at that in person, you know, 14 times at the county. He had them in his hand. 
and he put them under a microscope and he looked with his own eyes. So yeah, things may not show correctly in a black and white photo, but that doesn't, you know, discredit what he saw. Now, when I had mentioned that large fragment that Harper had found that was written up by Chief Houghton in his book, Special Unit Senator, which caused Harper to go look at the evidence, um, a reporter for the LA Times said, oh, it wasn't a large flag fragment. It was a flattened bullet. Well, if it's a flattened bullet, that's bullet number nine, because mm. <laughs> all the other eight are accounted for. So either way, either the fragment is too large to be from a 22, or if it's a flattened bullet, it's one bullet too many. Either way, that mysterious fragment, again, proves conspiracy. So we have this, you know, six ways from Sunday when it comes to the evidence. And Paul Schrade, I, I always thought this was a mistake on Paul Schrade's part, because he just wanted to have the LAPD and the county reinvestigate itself on this case. And what do you think the county's going to do if they reopen the case? They're going to just close it again and say we were right the first time. Again, there's so much money at stake. And now here's something else. I had a friend who worked for the county, and uh, I, I was explaining this to him about the bullets being switched and altered. And he said, oh, yeah, that's in our manual. He was a volunteer with the public defender's office. And he said, we have a manual that talks about the tricks that the LAPD will do to frame a suspect. And we know to look for these things. Now, Sirhan was originally appointed a public defender who might have had that manual and might have been able to argue that. And so very quickly, these private lawyers come in, probably sent by the CIA, to be perfectly honest, because the CIA has what they call a cleared attorneys panel. And, and James Earl Ray in the Martin Luther King case, his lawyer, his first lawyer, was a member of that CIA cleared attorneys panel. Clay Shaw, when he was being prosecuted by Jim Garrison in New Orleans for the assassination of JFK, his lawyer was a member of the cleared attorneys panel. And so you start to see the pattern here. When the CI is involved, they make sure one of their approved lawyers goes in to handle the case because they know that they will not let, you know, the real truth come out. They will only let the official story come out. Yeah, the uh, the the lawyer they had, I believe, had a little bit of a little bit of trouble dangling over his head, if I recall correctly, too, which I'm sure. Yes. Later. So yes. That's exactly. a strong incentive. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, so it's like there's two. And the other thing is now let's talk about how many bullets there were because there mm. were way more than eight bullets. Like I said, LAPD said there were eight bullets and they stopped there. If that flattened thing was a bullet, that's bullet nine. There are four bullet holes in the pantry door frames. And the FBI photographed them and labeled them very clearly bullet holes. And the county was disturbed by that in the 70s when there was a chance they might get reinvestigated and and said, you know, if those they wrote the they literally wrote a letter to the FBI and said, now, if you had called those possible or probable bullet holes, we wouldn't have cause for concern. They said, but if those are actual bullet holes, we should be looking for another shooter. You know how we know those are actual bullet holes besides the fact that it's kind of obvious just looking at it? But they're literally circled by the sheriffs. The sheriffs beat the LAPD there. The sheriffs were literally across the street where the ballots were being counted in the new IBM punch card vote counting machine, <laughs> you know, before hanging Chad was a problem or whatever. Um, 
so the sheriffs, you know, came over within seconds and they, they had to have removed those bullets because, um, again, their standard operating procedure is that after you remove a bullet, you circle where it was and you initial it. And that happened with all four of those holes. They're all circled and initialed. And, you know, the guy who pulled them out, unfortunately, I think he's dead now because I tried to find him and, you know, because I wanted to talk to him. Dan Moldea interviewed him, but didn't ask him very tough questions. And what's super interesting, in my book, I claim that Robert Mayhew was one of the key um, organizers of the on-the-ground assassination team. And Robert Mayhew, one of his best friends, was Peter Pitches, the L.A. sheriff at the time. So no surprise that it was the sheriffs who ran and pulled the bullets out of the wall before the LAPD could get there, you know, because Mayhew knew there were going to be too many bullets. You know, he knew there was going to be a guy firing from Sirhan's position, spraying the crowd. And besides those four that we know of, there's also, I, have, I found video in a UCLA archive and I got to tell you, when you research, you watch hours of video for possibly one second of something good. <laughs> you know, it's like you read hundreds of pages to find two or three facts you might use. You read thousands of documents to find, again, a page or two of text. So you can imagine how much I, re I read and watched to have a 500-page book. Mm -hmm. But anyway, in this video, it shows... So if you have door frames in your own house, look at them. And you'll notice there's like a thin layer of wood on top of the door post, the part that actually holds it up. And it was that thin piece that had been pulled away. Now, one reporter said the center part of the door frame was not only pulled away, but on a table. And he said where it bore the marks of a probe, probe that had removed two bullets from the door paneling, not the two bullets that were in the wood, but two more that were in just the paneling. All right, so if we were at nine plus four is 13, now we're up to like 16, right? <laughs> 16 bullets. Okay, and that's just the center door frame. In the video that I saw, there were the two, you could see the two holes that went through and into the post, but the video points to a third hole where it looks like there's a bullet still in that paneling piece that had been pulled off and is leaning next to the door. And if you want the URL to that video, it's in my book. It's in the footnote. You got to read and find it. But it's, when I saw that video, I literally called, I, I don't know if you know Jim Eugenio. He's the mastermind behind um, the JFK documentary that Oliver Stone did. Sounds very and he's, familiar. Yeah, he's written three books. He's an expert on the JFK case. Anyway, he and I were friends and he was living in Long Beach and I'm up in LA. It's about an hour away. And I called Jim. It's like, Jim, I can't leave this library till you see this video. I'm so afraid if I walk out this door, this video is going to disappear, you know, from evidence. We'll never see it again. And I wouldn't tell him on the phone what it was. And so he, he believed me and he drove his car as like, eight at night on a you know weekday and he came up to and then he saw the videos like lisa i'm glad i came <laughs> this is really important so again that's like a 17th bullet in the pantry and then there's an 18th bullet in the back of the stage door where um if 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 you're facing the pantry doors that robert caddy walked through and the one of those doors was open and through that door is the stage door that Kennedy had exited before he came into the pantry. And bottom of that stage door, which 
was up on a rise. So if somebody had been shooting from Sirhan's position and firing, a bullet could easily have gone all the way and ended up in the end, the bottom of that stage door. And the night of the assassination, there's a photo, an AP photo with two LAPD officers, Rossi and Wright, pointing at this bullet. And the, the caption says, the bullet is still in the wood. That's like a 19th bullet. And then there's even more. <laughs> then there's the LAPD's own photographer, Charles Collier, who said, oh, the bullets weren't just in the door frames. There were bullets in, all over the walls. And then you add that to Wolfer's original comment, which he said that the next morning to like a little task force. He's like, it's unbelievable how many bullet holes there are in the ceiling. So we're talking many, many bullets, more than one gun, more than two guns, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And in my book, I literally count four gunmen besides Sirhan that were seen by different witnesses in the pantry. So when people say, well, only Sirhan was seen, it's like, no, only Sirhan was reported as having been seen with a gun. Yeah. There were clearly other shooters and a I'm lot of them. And my theory is that they all fired at once. Because mm -hmm. when you all fire at once, you can't tell how many bullets are. It doesn't sound like 20 bullets being fired. It sounds like five. You're going boom, 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 boom. And a lot of people describe the sound as sounding like popcorn or firecrackers. Or somebody even described it as crackling a, a bag of potato chips. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> One of the witnesses. Because that's, that's what it would sound like if you had a lot of bullets going off at once. And, and so, to remind yeah. the audience, and correct me if I'm wrong, the key point, though, is I believe uh, Sirhan's gun only held eight. And it, was a, it was a revolver. Yes, correct? only eight. Only eight. It was a twenty-two um, Iverson Johnson, yeah, okay. which could only hold eight bullets. And it had eight shells in it when he turned it in, which is also interesting because often the shell is expelled. But mm -hmm. if he's firing blanks, maybe the shell is not expelled. I don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, I wouldn't know. I'm not sure if that, that gun you said is a, is a type of revolver or if that's a normal. I would, I would just... It's it's not a revolver. It's like manual. Yeah, okay. You'd have to I like, don't know. Yeah. I'd, ha I'd have to know the specific gun. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, it's not an automatic. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Um. And, and some people, you know, described it as a starter pistol. The other thing is during the struggle to capture Sirhan, because everybody saw him with a gun firing something, um, the gun was momentarily out of his hand, and then it was back in his hand. And when it was out of his hand, it went to a guy who worked for Time Life, and I'm blanking on his name right now, but again, Time Life, like CBS, was one of the CIA's most valued media assets. And that guy's business card was in Sirhan's pocket when he was arrested, as if they'd maybe talked right before the shooting. And he couldn't explain that, like why Sirhan had his card on him, which I also thought was interesting, because I'm sure he could explain it. It's more that he didn't want to explain it, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a good thing I forgot his name in case he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> But I always thought that was a little weird, and I thought if somebody were going to switch a gun, that's a good way to do it. Get a gun out of Sirhan's hand and then put a different gun in his hand. All right, but, you know, who knows? It could have been the same gun. But here's the thing. that After after the struggle, Rayford Johnson gets the gun. He keeps it. He goes to the hospital to see how RFK is, and then he goes to the LAPD with the gun from the pantry. And that gun, the number was h 5 three seven two five five three seven two five 
Okay. During the trial, Wolfer introduces what he says was the gun that made the bullets that were in display at the court and said, and the gun number was 58725, not 53725. Not a typo. They're not near each other. Um, you know, they don't sound the same. It wasn't even on a typewriter. You know, it was, and the lawyers went through that trial transcript with a fine tooth comb. They corrected the smallest of typos. I mean, these guys were completely detail oriented and it's in the record. I mean, you can literally see the corrections from one day to the next. That was never corrected. And there's a, there's a letter in the file where one of Sirhan's later attorneys says, you may have heard that a different gun number was used at the trial. That's true. It was a different gun used at the trial. That's illegal. <laughs> you can't. I mean, if Sirhan ever had a lawyer willing to take this case, all his lawyers are like trying to get him out on parole. That's bullshit. Retry this damn case and this guy walks. You know, this guy should never have been in jail in the first place. There's literally no evidence to link him to this crime. It's just incredible. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess my thoughts is I know you mentioned, uh, you know, people saying, oh, that's the only gun they saw. We know that's not uh -huh. true for one, uh, at least by one person, because I believe one end up admitting it, and specifically a security guard. Uh, and right. correct me if I'm wrong, I believe he had what appeared to be a 38, but I heard somewhere that it, the, that specific gun has also has versions that are 22. So that's the key point that it kind of looks like a 38. It's more colloquially known for being a 38, but there are versions of it that can be, uh, I mean, I'm sure if we're dealing with a conspiracy, I mean, how hard would it be to, to I don't know, fashion the gun had, that looks like that right yeah. and we're talking about thane eugene caesar the man mm -hmm. who was in the best position to have shot kennedy under the arm not necessarily in the best position to shoot him behind the ear uh and we can talk about that another time but mm -hmm. um thane had two guns one was the issued one from a security where he worked and by the way i wanted to work this in so i'm glad you brought that up Dwayne wolfer when he left the lapd in the 80s guess where he went he became president of Ace Security, the same place that it sent Sir Ann to, I mean, sent uh, Thane Eugene Caesar to be an extra guard at the hotel because they had a bigger than usual crowd, more than their own hotel security could handle. Um, he had a 38 and a 22. He sold his 22 after the assassination, but told people he had sold it before the assassination. And then the receipt surfaced showing the previous date. So we knew he had lied about when he sold the gun. And the guy he sold it to, he said, you know, be careful with this gun. There's kind of a, you know, an issue with this gun, kind of like a story behind this gun. Well, somehow that gun gets taken away from the guy he sold it to and ends up in the bottom of a lake <laughs> in Louisiana. And a film producer in LA hears about this and he does this huge rescue operation. I can't help but think there might have been some CI money behind that to retrieve the gun. And Lynn Mangan, who we mentioned earlier, one of the things she showed me when I was at her house was a letter from SEAL Laboratories where they had tested Thane Eugene Caesar's gun retrieved from the bottom of a lake against the bullets now on display at the California State Archives and said they didn't match. And I laughed when I read that. I said, 
Well, that's because the bullets there aren't the real bullets. That's the winky panel bullets. Where's the real bullet? Let's test it against the actual bullet that shot Kennedy. You know, we might find a different result. And so this is another thing. Paul Schrade kept saying, well, I want the bullets retested. I'm like, against what? We don't even know where the real bullets are. There's no point. And what's worse is one of the panelists, the one that Paul Schrade had picked, and again, blanking on his name, but it's in my book, and it, it doesn't matter for this, but he went with Lynn Mangan back to the California State Archives because he couldn't believe that the bullets would have the wrong ID. He's like, that's incredible. The LAPD just wouldn't do that, would they? And when he went to examine the bullets, they had grease on the bottom that is degrading and eroding the, the, the signs and the lettering on the base of the bullet. And I believe that SEAL Laboratories probably did that because my understanding is when they got the bullets, they made a mold and they probably put oil in it so it didn't stick to the mold and popped out. But the oil was never cleaned off afterwards, which again might have been intentional so that we can never now prove the bullets are different. But it's very clear in the paper record. You can look at the LAPD log. Every bullet as it's logged into, into evidence has the marking that was on it at that time. And years later, the panel, they made an inventory of all the bullet markings and it's clearly different. So whatever the bullet says now, we may never be able to prove it now, but the paper record shows that they were altered. All right. Um, so I think we've clearly shown, or, or you've clearly shown that uh, that Sirhan, it clearly was more than just Sirhan at the very least. So where, what drove you to the conclusion? Because I'm sure you have more than just that's what makes sense, because it does kind of make sense. Uh, what drove you to the conclusion uh, that it, he was firing blanks, he didn't fire anyone? Because I know it's typically okay. theorized that he was the one who shot Paul Schrate. Uh, right. And, and Paul believes that. Others. He has yeah. Robert Kennedy Jr. believing that. I don't believe that because the witnesses closest to Sirhan were Rayford Johnson and... Um, uh, the guy who grabs Sirhan first, the Mater D, whose name again is in my book. But the Mater D said it looked like there was a little shower of paper that came out of the gun. People have tried to explain that away, saying, well, maybe Sirhan's first shot hit the ceiling. So he's like, I'm going to kill you, Kennedy. And he fires straight up in the ceiling. That makes no sense at all. So I don't buy that. I think that's Dan Muldeo's explanation. And Rayford Johnson was an Olympic decathlon champion. He had participated in races all his life. He knew what a starter pistol looked like. And he said it looked like a starter gun throwing off residue, meaning the paper residue that flash burns. A blank is literally any cartridge stuffed with paper instead of a bullet that flash burns when it's ignited by the uh, the gunpowder primer. And uh, and so and the other thing is witnesses described a little tongue of flame coming from his gun. All right. And there's about a dozen ear witnesses who said it sounded like a cap gun. It sounded like a cap gun. It sounded like a cap gun. <laughs> over and over and yet then they're like and then later it sounded like bullets well that's because he fired two caps first basically and then everybody started firing and they assumed you know they were hearing mm -hmm. Sirhan's gun so a lot of confusion around that but besides it just making sense and the bullets not matching which to me is compelling it is the ear witnesses and the eyewitnesses to what Sirhan was doing also one other thing 
he was surrounded by people, supposedly fired all eight shots, but he was captured after the second shot. And the maitre d' was adamant about that. They tried to say he was captured after the fourth shot because Kennedy was shot four times. So how could he be captured off the second shot? And yet Kennedy has all these bullets in him. And the maitre d' said no. And we pushed his hand away from the crowd. And they were literally like, their fingers were like in front of the gun. So it's like people were risking their own fingers being shot off. And again, if he's firing blanks, you know, they might've gotten a little burned, but they wouldn't lose anything, you know, and, and no one would be shot in those directions. So, and then the, of course, the last thing that really sealed it for me was I found four different witnesses, very compelling witnesses, who said very clearly, and one of them's on TV, on YouTube, you can go find it, George Green says, the shooter was on the table. Sirhan was not on the table when he was firing. He was flat on the floor and he was a short guy. Mm -hmm. So if he saw a shooter on the table, that was somebody else. And that was not Thane Eugene Caesar, because he was also on the ground right next to Kennedy. But, you know, four people saw very clearly a shooter on the table. And I thought, well, that makes sense, because Sirhan was next to the table, and there were witnesses who said it looked like somebody fired from the table and then jumped off and ran out. That's basically what they saw, which I think is, again, exactly what happened. Somebody fired shots from Sirhan's general direction, and but Sirhan was the one with the gun visible. I believe all the other shooters had their gun hidden or disguised in some way. In fact, I talk about a Navy weapon that's hidden in a white glove, and somebody talked about seeing a white busboy outfit and the guy's hand right up to Kennedy's head. It has a plunger action. And when you, you know, it's almost like you press your hand into it and it fires a bullet right between your knuckles from the glove where you wouldn't even know there's a gun hidden. In the CIA's museum in DC, which I went to, they have a gun so small it can be uh, hidden in the palm of your hand and it's tied to like a ring. It looks like a wedding ring. And you move that ring slightly and boom, it fires. And I'm sure you have to hold your hand a certain way so you don't put a hole in your own hand. <laughs> Another weapon they had was literally a cigarette case. It looks exactly like a cigarette case, but it's a gun and it fires. And the CIA had camera guns. And one of the witnesses who thought the shots were coming from the table said it's funny because it sounded like, um, like light bulbs from a camera breaking. And maybe it was firing right through the light bulbs, in which case you might mm -hmm. see a flash and assume it's the camera and not even realize it's a gun. But she put the sound with that, and, and that made me think of that. So, and by the way, I, I know camera guns are a thing because when I was, I, I grew up in Palo Alto, and Gerald Ford drove by our house one day on the way to Stanford. It was the day before... Sarah Jean Moore shot him in San Francisco the next day. And they had already had death threats against him. And as he's driving by our house, I lifted up my little Kodak Instachrome or whatever that was called, you know, to take a picture. And a guy in a SWAT van following right behind the president's car lifted a, a you know, a megaphone. He's like, put the gun down. And one guy jumped off with a gun pointed right at me and started running at me. So, of course, I put the gun down. And for years, I was wondered, what was the big deal? Why couldn't a little 13-year-old girl take a picture of the president going by? Well, if it was a gun and they'd had death threats, then maybe I was some agent, you know, <laughs> trying to kill him. <laughs> so I know that they're serious about that because personal experience. <laughs> so when, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we're in the ballpark of like 70 ish eyewitnesses at the at the event somewhere yeah. around there. Now, so, and I actually made a spreadsheet because all there were 70 people that the LAPD allowed were there. There were at least three others who were provably there but didn't make the list, probably because of a misinterpretation of something they said. Some people said they were outside the kitchen and that's the pantry. But the LAPD read that in a couple of cases as like outside the pantry area, which they weren't. Um, but of those, only a few were immediately around Sirhan. And so I literally made a spreadsheet. It's like, did they see Sirhan? Did they hear a gun? Did they see a gun? Did they, you know, describe who they saw? And then for each witness, there's like four different interviews of each of those witnesses. So I had to go read each of them. It's like, well, to the FBI, they said this, but to the LAPD, they said this. And then their second LAPD, you know, D interview, they totally reversed it and said something else. And so I, I tracked it all. And there's only about four or five witnesses that are credible to me. And those are the people who saw both Kennedy and Sirhan at the moment of the shooting. And that's how I knew for a fact they were facing each other because they all described exactly the same scene. Others only saw a gun near Kennedy, but couldn't tie it to Sirhan. They couldn't describe the shooter. One guy who saw the gun near Ken Kennedy's head said he had bare arms. Well, Sirhan had long sleeves and they weren't rolled up. I mean, because there are pictures of him immediately after the shooting. And he had two, two layers, you know, basically in a velour shirt on top with fitted you know, sleeve things. So that arm that somebody saw with a gun near Kennedy could not have been Sirhan. Yeah, I brought up the 70 because in my head, I see that as a, from a conspiracy mindset, that that many eyewitnesses and the, with the distraction factor, obviously going to draw them. This is kind of a, from a, you know, whether going to trial, that sort of thing, I, I think that would work well to their advantage. Because yes, you may have one yes. or two Z's here and there that may contradict your 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 perspective, but then you can go, well, look, we have 50 other people who say this, and then you find ways mm -hmm. to discredit it. Once you get in a, in a court, it's very easy to for them to be able to discredit different witnesses or or, exactly. or get them to change their story. They could have eyewitnesses right. say this. One misstep, yeah. one wrong mm -hmm. word, and boom, you're not, you've lost your credibility. Yeah. 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 You can, Excellent you, point. Yeah, and you can and easily the, talk the witnesses. The perception was, yes. right, that all these people saw it, even though that wasn't the reality. The other perception, the, the, the cameramen all had their cameras off. People have this mistaken impression that it was broadcast live, but all the cameras were turned on after Sirhan was captured, after Kennedy was shot, because uh, they thought they were done for the night. You know, Kennedy had given his speech. They all turned their equipment off. Now, they turned it back on when the shooting started, but by the time they got it on and running, the shooting was over. I mean, it was over in like four seconds. I mean, it was a really short amount of time when all the shots were made and then boom, you know, bodies everywhere. And so that's how they got away with, it's an incredibly brilliant structure. It's a magic act. If you think of those grand illusions you see, you know, on stage in Las Vegas or whatever, and the guy walks up and gets in the box and then the box goes up into the air and somebody comes, suddenly the magician's walking down behind you in the audience. It's like, well, he can't be in the box and on the ground. Something else had to have happened. I remember watching a, a show. I won't name the magician. Very famous. Been on TV a billion times. And I had, you know, my remote with me. And I was able to roll it back a little bit. And I saw the moment where a hand switched. It's like he stepped behind a curtain and a different hand came out. And that was supposed to be him. Somebody dressed like him. 
but at that point the, the magician was all, already running around to the back of the theater and I read the CIA studied magic. They had magicians on staff. John Mulholland was a famous one. Yeah, you've read about him. And, <laughs> and uh, but I, I don't remember if it's him who said that or in the manual. I think it was in their manual of trickery yep. that they wrote. <laughs> but they said it's it's as it's more important to fool the mind than to fool the eye, because the eye will eventually work things out. I mean, if you if you don't fool the mind, you can trick somebody, but they'll eventually mentally be able to figure it out. But if you fool the mind, they won't even know they've been tricked. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, exactly what happened in the pantry. It seems so obvious. Sirhan was caught with a gun in his hand. People had seen him fire it. All these people were dead. Any other stories just weren't reported, you know? And it's not like the reporters were lying. They weren't told that. The LAPD kept all that really close. In fact, the bullet evidence sheets, when a bullet was turned in, I noticed they were all marked confidential at the bottom because I'm sure they realized once they hit eight, they had to stop, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so any other bullets had to be disappeared somehow and they figured out which eight they were going to allow as bullets that had actually done some damage. Yeah, one of the victims even thought he had been shot twice. And I don't know if they paid the doctor off or if maybe the bullet passed through and so they couldn't recover it. Um uh, Vince DiPiero, who was next to Kennedy when he was being shot, he had a bullet hole through his sweater. And he wanted to give it to the LAPD because it's like, that'll show the trajectory of one of the shots. They didn't want it. They wouldn't take it from him. He has like crime scene evidence and they wouldn't take it. That's incredible to me. I mean, they knew they knew from the first time they walked into that pantry, they're like, oh, my God, this was a conspiracy. We only have one guy. And they did let an APB run for two weeks trying to find the girl in the polka dot dress because they had more than 20 witnesses to this girl in a polka dot dress, which we can talk about at another time, seen with Sirhan. And uh, there was also in the original APB, there was a guy in a gold sweater and the girl in the polka dot dress seen with Sirhan. The guy was disappeared almost immediately from the APB. But the girl, that was out there for two weeks. Even while they're saying there's no conspiracy, they're trying to find another conspirator because they had, knew they had too many bullets. And if they could have had one other person and they did try and get people to identify Munir, they showed people photographs of Munir and some people thought he was Sirhan said yeah that was the shooter and so that seems to have been the LAPD's backup plan if they had to admit conspiracy they were still going to keep it in the family just incredible <laughs> I just have one last question and uh the, the the with the eyewitnesses and the eight number I know you, you You've said in, in previous talks that, that they make it sound like all of them seem to roughly agree on eight. You, you show that's not the case. And the reason why I bring this up is because it just seems to be such a weird exact number for a lot of people to get to. And I think this plays into my point before, kind of this group mentality. And once you get a bunch of witnesses together, because if right now, if I go, bop, 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 tell me how many I just, how many bops I did. I have no idea. Right. Exactly. I, I don't know how many I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the point <laughs> being is, but all you, I think it would take is you get get a few witnesses starting to come to a similar conclusion and then all you gotta do is say was it around that and then then they start to kind of roughly agree and then it builds yeah. up and then and so and, and, and people anyone, said for yeah. example eight to ten shots they just wrote that as eight you know things yeah. like that yeah and a lot of people only like thought they heard five shots or less and uh, several said there were like two shots and then a pause and then a fuselage 
and I couldn't tell you how many shots, but a couple of witnesses even said it sounded like more than one gun. <laughs> I mean, they were very forthcoming. So it's not like they all just, you know, were tricked into believing. They told what they heard the LAPD tricked the public by hiding those records for 20 years. I mean, 1968 was the crime. Their files and those interviews, a few of them were released, of course, to Sirhan's lawyers, but only a few. And all the files weren't released until 1988. I mean, 20 years later. And by then, everybody's lost interest. The cover story is well in place. They already had the reinvestigation and said, oh. And it's funny because, like I said, although the panel said they couldn't match it to Sirhan's gun, the headlines said Sirhan's gun was the only one used in the pantry. And so that's how they fooled the public. If you read the story, it doesn't quite say that. But the headlines mm -hmm. are all people read in a lot of cases. So there's been a mass mind control job on the public on this case. All right. Well, I think next episode, we're probably going to start getting to some of the characters, maybe specifically suspects, uh, you know, some of the mm -hmm. other suspects uh, that, you know, particularly ones that maybe they actually were looking into and then maybe ones they weren't looking into. Like we already mentioned the season. should have been looking into. Yeah, yeah. they should have been looking into. <laughs> Uh, is yeah. there anything else on the ballistic sides that you feel like is necessary to this this story before no, we... No, I think it's super clear yeah. that there yep. were way too many bullets to have been one gun, and there's just a ton of evidence that Saran was firing blanks behind, besides him just not you know, being able to prove any of the bullets came from his gun. And, and even if you don't buy the blanks, I think at even even if it you just buy that there was more than eight bullets, which seems very easy to prove. That yeah, I mean, pick one. Eight. There's there's so yeah. many other bullets. If if even one of those was real, it was a conspiracy, and that's why I say this isn't a question. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is a conspiracy reality in this case, easily provable. Which is why I think it's so little talked about with the JFK case. It's a little bit more obscure, and I think, you know, it's very clear once you get into it. But it's also easy to make other arguments and explain pieces away. You can't explain away this case. You can't. And Dan Muldea tried. He wrote a book where, like, the first two-thirds of it were, like, evidence of conspiracy, and then the last third was trying to close the door on all of that. And basically, at one point, he's like, well, I just can't believe Wolfer would have lied. Therefore, he must have been telling the truth. Therefore, it wasn't a conspiracy. It was the lamest thing I've ever read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, people don't do bad uh, things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So where, where can my audience find you at and your work, uh, in slash or your work? Okay, I have a blog, which has like years of articles there at realhistoryarchives.blogspot.com. When I first started, like 30 years ago, I also put up a website, www.realhistoryarchives.com. Half those links are broken. I used to have a whole OKC section. It's all blown up now. All the things I linked to are gone. Um, but check the blog. And of course, I'm on Twitter, at Lisa Pease. I am there usually daily. And you can interact with me there. I love hearing from people when they read my book or sometimes people take a picture of the book cover and say, I just got your book. <laughs> so uh, that's always fun. Yeah, yeah, you're an absolute you. sweetheart in there. <laughs> I'll give oh, you that. thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and I appreciate you coming on. We'll do this again soon. I'll hit you up for scheduling for the next one after this. Uh, for those who want to support my work, patreon.com is NoeJose2020. Uh, I do want to give credit to my sponsors. I'm reading you guys off at the end of the episode now because I feel like that flows better. For some reason, you guys are paying money. Let me know if you don't like that. Uh, but that's what I'm going to do from now on unless you guys protest enough and maybe I'll go back to the old way. But I just want to give credit to my patrons real quick. I have 
uh, Toad, my co-host on Tower Gang. It's an offensive comedy podcast. For those who don't like offensive comedy, don't go check that out. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he, you can follow him on Twitter at Tower Gang Toad. Also have at Abrogate D's. You can follow him on Twitter. He's a mutual of mine. Then Kevin B. Clark, who's a full-time guitarist and private music teacher in the New York area. So if you're looking for a guitarist for a gig or you're looking to get music lessons, he's your guy if you're in New York particularly. And then I also have at Z-O-V-E-R-A-C-K on Twitter. Go give him a follow. Uh, yeah, the, also follow me on Twitter at TowerGangJose. Uh, appreciate you being here, Lisa. Uh, oh, yeah. Also, get my merch at TopLobster.com. Get those uh, Terrence Yeeke didn't kill himself shirts, uh, Kenneth Trendy didn't kill himself shirts, or just get a No Way Jose shirt or some other <laughs> Top Lobster stuff. Uh, appreciate you You coming. need a Sirhan didn't do it shirt. <laughs> I, I actually, I'm not going to lie. I already in my head was like, you know what? I think like a free Sirhan. I don't know. I'm trying to think Thank something. Thank you. Hashtag yeah. free Sirhan. In my book, I yeah. actually ask people at the end to use that hashtag. So that yeah. would be awesome. <laughs> so I, I think I think that's that free Sirhan. It's got like sort of meme potential. Because I obviously with the Terrence Yiki and Kenneth Trendu didn't kill himself. I was obviously playing off the Epstein thing, but kind of yeah. flipping on its head a little bit. Uh, so yeah. it, it kind of catches on a little bit. You know, you got to try to f- capture the zeitgeist a little bit. Um <laughs> But yeah, I appreciate you coming on. And with that, we are out of here. We'll do this again soon. Uh, Thanks, everyone who watched. Like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. We are out.